Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. This is our Critical Doctrine sermon series, which we started uh, the week before Christmas, if everyone remembers. Um, we did a sermon back then on the deity of Christ, and we're going to continue on with that today. Uh, so just, as, just before we get going, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity again to preach on, on doctrine that I believe is critical for us to understand and, and get into our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that today you help me to bring forth some uh, points from Scripture which will prove again and even more convincingly that you, Lord, are God, that you, Lord Jesus, are God. And uh, Lord, I pray that you help me with my words Help me to be clear and concise uh, and enable me to say the things that you want me to say, not the things that I want to say, but that the Spirit is saying today. And I pray this in your wonderful name. And be with all of us and open our hearts to receive what the Spirit is saying to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you remember in the first sermon series, we looked at the testimonies of the disciples of Christ who are eyewitnesses of the risen Christ and their proclamations of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. So that the, the eyewitnesses of Jesus himself repeatedly throughout Scripture would mention Jesus as the Son of God. In sense, they referenced his deity before men and they wrote that in Scripture. We also looked at the testimony of Jesus himself who declared himself to be equal with God and because of this claim was officially condemned and crucified. So as we know, the official reason Jesus was crucified was because of that he claimed to be the Son of God, and the Pharisees saw that as ultimate blasphemy, and that's why they crucified him. We had some fantastic scriptures that we pulled up, and I only pulled up a few, because if I had pulled out all of those scriptures, it would have been a lot longer doing that sermon. We're going to go today, though, we're going to be looking at the claims of Jesus' deity made by other eyewitnesses, including some unexpected ones. So this is, we're going to look at some quite interesting uh, references to the Godhood of Jesus. Also, we're going to look at other evidences for his divinity as stated in Scripture. So things that only God could do. We're going to look at those sorts of things as well. John 11, verse 20 to 27, uh, Martha made an astounding confession. But before she did, Jesus made an astounding confession as well. So let's have a read. It says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So even though her brother was dead, even then she knew that Jesus had the power with God to fix up the situation. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, slightly misunderstanding what he just said, said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Because the Pharisees had the hope in 
or, or the Jewish people had the hope of the resurrection. But then Jesus said something. I find this amazing. I am the resurrection. So this was prior to himself being resurrected. Prior to Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. That he himself is the one who will raise everyone up. He didn't say, the Father is the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. And I am is a title for God in the Old Testament. And then he said this, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Meaning, if you die, you, you will live. You don't die to die, you die to live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So straight away the onus went straight away onto Martha. And Martha, what did she say? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ. And Christ is another way of saying the Messiah. So the one that was destined to come, that the Jewish people believed and waited for, the Messiah. And then she said this, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Isn't that a wonderful confession? So there, there's Martha saying, you are the Son of God. And then there was the confession of the centurion, Matthew 27, 54. And it says, when the centurion and those with him were who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake. This was just after Jesus had been crucified. He was still on the cross. He had just died. Uh, and the centurion saw the earthquake and all that had happened throughout that day. They were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So the centurion, now centurion is a Roman soldier, isn't he? We have to remember that centurions were powerful men in Roman armies having command over a hundred because century, centurion, means 100 soldiers. And for him to confess such an honour to Jesus, because remember, this is a man of honour giving honour to someone greater, he would have had to have had witnessed some incredibly convincing manifestations, don't you think? And what, what, they say, what did they say that happened when Jesus died? Uh, well, it went dark. The whole place went dark. Uh, there was an earthquake. The temple split in two. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom like an angel just ripped it. Dead people, dead prophets from the past rose from the dead and started to walk in view of men. The thing is that when the centurion saw these manifestations, when he saw these powerful events taking place, what was his words? Surely, surely. He had to be. Who else could cause this sort of, you know, natural disturbance? Nature erupted at the death of Jesus. Nature split in two at the death of Jesus. So that was a pretty powerful testimony. And a Roman centurion who was not a Jew said this was the Son of God. Had to be. He knew enough. And not only that, you know why he said surely he was the Son of God or he is the Son of God? Because he knew that the main confession that this guy was making everywhere he went was, I'm the Son of God. He came to announce the Son of God. God's Son is here in the flesh. So that's pretty powerful testimony. Now then there was the faith confession of the Ethiopian eunuch. If people have read the 
if you've read the book of Acts, it says the story of the Ethiopian eunuch whom Philip witnessed to of Christ. So Philip ran up beside the chariot as the chariot was going along and the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the book of Isaiah. He happened to be in uh, chapter 53, one of the high points of the book of Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? You know, it's like, who's this? Who's he talking about himself or is he talking about a Messiah to come or something? And then he jumped up on the carriage and he started to tell him all about Jesus and how this, test, this scripture that you're reading right now has just been fulfilled, you know, a few months ago. This confession, which the eunuch declared, was the result of a personal revelation he received as a result of understanding the fulfillment of prophecy as written in Isaiah 53. Acts 8, 36 to 37 says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is a, an amazing one. The confession of the angel Gabriel. Luke 1 verse 26 to 35 says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And uh, Mary said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the angel Gabriel now testifying that Jesus will be the Son of God and is the Son of God. This is an interesting confession that we see in the Bible. And Matthew 8, 28 to 29 says, When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. These were terribly violent men. And guess what was the first thing that came out of their mouths? What do you want with us, son of God? So the confession from a demon's mouth, or how there's a legion of demons in this guy, in these guys was that Jesus is the son of God. And then he, they said, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So in a sense, they're referencing him as the judge, as the one that will condemn them to hell. That's amazing confession, isn't it? From demons. Now here we see demons declaring that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And we, not that we should accept the testimony of demons who accepts the testimony of demons normally. We shouldn't. If a demon come and said something to him, just get away from me. I don't listen to you. You're a liar. But when their testimonies line up with Scripture, it's just another testimony that you go, well, if, if the demons acknowledge him as the Son of God, then, you know, that's pretty convincing. And the reason why that is is because Jesus is known in hell. And then evil spirits. Evil spirits, demons, you can see them the same. Some scholars see them as, as different. 
Um, but that, that's another thing altogether. Mark 3.11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, saw Jesus, they fell down before him. So what does evil spirits do when Jesus comes along? They fall before him. They fall on their faces and they cry out, you are the son of God. Isn't that amazing? So again, we see evil spirits fall down before his majesty and cry out, out of fear of him, you are the son of God. Evil spirits bowed before Christ. And according to scripture, Jesus functioned in a ministry of exorcism, setting people free of satanic bondage of all kinds. Many demons that Jesus casted out was demons of infirmities, which means like sicknesses, demons of sickness. He would, he would approach it where in, in the medical world, we give them a drug for everything and chemically try to alter the thing but he would see them as demons that he would cast out not every kind not all sickness is demonic but he would see certain sicknesses in in a demonic sense now get this satan knew who jesus was matthew 4 1 to 3 says then jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry and the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god it's an interesting question because when Pilate came up and said, are you the son of God? And he said, you've said it. Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. But in an effort to place doubts in the mind of the physically restricted Lord Jesus, because that's really what physicality did to Jesus. It restricted his omnipotence. It restricted his omnipresence. It restricted all the qualities of God so that he couldn't function in the fullness of those, but only for a short time. And that was why it was in the sense that he could be tempted, because it says you can't tempt God. Well, you can't tempt Jesus, but from a physical standpoint, there was a possibility of trying to at least. And that's why Satan came to at least try to tempt Jesus now that he had him in a physical form. But then it just proved that you can't, because Jesus did not sin. He was even then. He could not be moved to do that. So Satan demands proof of his deity. And pretty well today, don't people ask, ask for proof? It's like atheists today will say, if, if he is the son of God, prove it to me. But then they go one step further, prove that there is a God. You know, So Jesus is the son of God and Satan knew it. But as a general rule, Jesus never humoured such demands. Whenever the uh, Pharisees would demand a miracle or a sign or a wonder, Jesus wouldn't do it. He would always do it according to the will of God, not according to the demands of men. Now, this is probably the most convincing one of all. John 20 uh, verse 31 says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now we know that the Bible, this thing right here, especially the New Testament, even though the Old Testament, as Chuck Mister would say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Even though it's, it's one complete book, Really, the testimonies that John talking, is talking about is about the New Testament. It was written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So now we're told that the New Testament was written for that purpose alone, that we may believe that he is the Son of God. 
So all these cults that go and deny Jesus as being the Son of God and try to reinterpret all those scriptures, they're just they're playing with fire, literally. Because the whole thing was written for the purpose of making sure that we understand that he is the Son of God. The Gospels of Jesus Christ were written with the express purpose that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. Cults everywhere who deny the deity of Christ should read that scripture a few thousand times. That's what my recommendation would be. Just keep reading it until it sinks in, until it occurs to them that the intent of the New Testament is to declare and make clear to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Everyone getting this today? Now, we should also believe on the miracles themselves. And this is the final few scriptures I'm going to be pulling up. John 14, 11 says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So what he's saying is, believe me that if, if, you're in the, if he's in the Father and the Father is in him, what is he saying? They are one. So he's saying in, in that same breath, I am the Son of God, in, by, just by saying that. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. That the miracles, Jesus believed the miracles held enough weight to convince everyone that he is the Son of God. Christ himself advised us to look to the miracles themselves as evidence for the claims of his Godhood and his divinity. Charles Ryrie said this, Jesus had the power to forgive sins by healing a man with palsy. The scribes considered this claim to be blasphemy because they recognized that only God can forgive sin. The miracle of healing was done in order to validate Christ's claims to be able to forgive sin. Now, who remembers when that, that scripture where Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven? Do you remember that? And they just, that was like, they couldn't believe it. Only God can forgive sin. How can you say, Son, your sins are forgiven? Well, because if he's God, he can say that. So only Jesus could make that claim. Only the Son of God could make that claim. What about calming the storm? This is a work of divinity. Ever heard of anyone outside of Christ who could calm a storm? Outside of using harp technology? <laughs> no? Well, Matthew eight twenty four to 27 says, Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Does that speak of, a, of God? You know, if God said, I don't want winds and waves, that, it would stop. So Jesus said it, and what happened? It stopped. What about walking on water? Can, do you know anyone that can do that without a speedboat? John 6, 16 to 20 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. So here's Jesus. He's walking on water. He's coming up beside them in the boat. And it was a storm, so there's waves. So he's not just walking on a nice flat piece of water like some people say that he did a magic trick and put glass under the water. No, it was a storm. 
He's walking over raging waves. So could a normal human do that? Yeah. It's, they do magic tricks, but this was no magic trick. This was the power of God. He's walking it's in the middle of a lake that is a few miles wide, and he walks straight up to them. That's another work of divinity, proving that he is the Son of God. What about the withering of the fig tree? Matthew twenty one nineteen says, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. That's, that's a pretty powerful account, isn't it? That Jesus walked up the tree, said, May you never bear figs again, and that tree immediately died. You know, I've pulled trees out of the ground. They don't immediately die. They're out of the ground and they're just standing there. They're still in, you know, the leaves are full. But this, in this case, the tree withered. So it's like advanced aging, advanced death. Like what would look like within an hour of getting pulled out is how it looked immediately. Why do you think he did that? You think it was, he was just, you know, hated fig trees or hated that actual tree? It, it was, yeah, well, it wasn't producing anything and that's why he cursed it. But then another account says that it was out of season, so it shouldn't have had figs anyway. But it wasn't for that purpose. It was to, um, to give more evidence to the disciples. So when the disciples see it, they go, man, only God could do that. He spoke to a tree and it died in front of our eyes. I'm sure the tree got taken to heaven immediately. He was used as a, as a sign. <laughs> anyway, then there was the coin in the mouth of the fish. And this is an, an amazing account. In Matthew 17, verse 24 to 27, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma coin came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. And what did he say? What do you think, Simon? He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and pay taxes? From their own sons or from others? And that's an amazing, that alone is amazing because he knew this conversation Peter had had away from him. So in a sense, proving his omnipresence, that he's everywhere present if he chooses to be in a physical sense because he obviously... Under his physical restrictions, he if he chose to be omnipresent in a certain place, he could be. Uh, when he's re removed, that restriction is removed. He is omnipresent everywhere. He can't help but see everything. But in this one sense, he proved his godhood again just by being able to say that to Peter. And then Peter said this, the sons are exempt from others. The sons are exempt. And so Jesus proved that the Jews shouldn't have had to pay taxes. But then he said, but so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. The Bible doesn't go and tell us what happens when Peter went fishing. It doesn't tell us when he pulled the first fish out. It doesn't say, yeah, there was the coin, does it? But it says, according to faith, let it be unto you. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that if Jesus said that was going to be the case, that that would have been exactly as it happened. Peter would have found the four drachma coin and gone and paid for the tax. And if that was the case, which I believe it is, and, and uh, the entire testimony of Scripture will lead you to believe that that's exactly what happened, then, yes, Jesus is the uh, 
son of God in the sense that only he could predict something that unusual. What an unusual thing. Imagine if someone said that to you. Go and fish and there's a coin in his mouth. You'd go and you'd open it. Get out of here. There's a coin in there. You'd think, what is with that guy? The works of divinity, casting out of demons into a herd of pigs. What about that one? Matthew 8, 28-32. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men come, coming from the tombs met him, and they were so violent that no one could pass that, that way. What do you want with us? They said. And then they announced, Son of God, and that's the scripture that I quoted earlier. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance away from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Now Jesus allowed this, and he, he allowed what would seem like the destruction of somebody else's property. You know, imagine the farmer. He's got this big herd of pigs, and next thing you know, they're all dead and, you know, in the water. He wouldn't be too happy, would he? But even though that was the case, and even though some people actually try to incriminate Jesus for that, it was done for a purpose. Because in the scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, all of those people that were there who witnessed that occurrence would have no doubt in their mind that Jesus, well, that they would just be declaring, he is the Son of God. Because only the Son of God could have that authority that out of these men... These demons would come out, enter those pigs, and those pigs rushed down the bank. So visually, they could see the effect of those demons. They could see the effect of what Jesus just said. And then on top of that, guess who's sitting there in his right mind? Well, there was some accounts say two. Did this one say two? Yeah, two. Other accounts say one. But there was two demon-possessed men sitting there in their right mind. That's a pretty powerful testimony to his godhood, isn't it? Seeing Nathaniel under a fig tree. John 1, 47-49, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Here's Jesus seeing Nathanael in another place, in another time, outside of where Jesus was. And using his powers of omnipresence, saw him under a fig tree when Philip came up and called him and said, come and meet this man who's, that he believed is the Son of God or the Messiah, the Christ. And then what was the first words out of his mouth when he realized what Jesus had been able to do? You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So that's, that's another powerful scripture which declares his godhood. Now, when you combine all of those scriptures that I've just mentioned today and all the ones that we talked about a few weeks back, does that tell you something? Does that, I don't know how people can't see it. I don't know how these cults get it so wrong. When the Bible is so clear, the entire canon of the New Testament was written for the purpose of declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, yet they will still not see it. They will still deny it. And anyone that says, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist and a liar, do not follow them, do not believe in them. So all of these people that will not acknowledge Jesus as God are liars. And that's the way we've got to see it. And we've got to, with as much compassion as possible, try to correct them, uh, try to align them with the truth. Just the last thing. His atonement power proves his deity. 
So the final proof I'll present for Christ Godhood is that his blood has the power to atone for the sins of every man and woman on earth. Would any normal man's blood have that sort of power? There's, there's not a, a person around who has the power in his own blood, even if he's lived a righteous, totally righteous life, to atone for the sins of men. Only God. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So no mere man has that much authority before the Father in heaven for all the sins of men to be atoned for by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had to be God. Only God could atone for the sins of men. No man could atone for men. But a God-man could atone for men. And uh, I think that was probably, in that sense, we could take it that actual scripture a lot further and take that whole concept a lot further have us all convinced that he is the son of God just from that one scripture alone but I believe that he is the son of God and I think I've proved my case yeah okay so let's bow our hearts thank you Jesus Lord thank you for this time together thank you for these scriptures that uh, that you've revealed to me and that uh, you've allowed me to pull up today and just to over and over and over convince us to prove to us without a shadow of a doubt that according to scripture Jesus is the son of God son of the most high and that you are Christ you are the Messiah that was uh, promised in Old Testament uh, prophecy to come and that you came and you laid your life down for the sins of men Um, and now through your blood we have forgiveness of sin And you've made restitution for us, you've justified us, and you will glorify us in days to come. And uh, you'll bring us through into your heavenly kingdom, where we'll dwell forever and ever and ever, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, as the word says. And and so, Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for uh, everything that you revealed to us today. And I pray that every single person here and all those listening on YouTube and in listening to podcasts will be convinced also that you are the Son of God and uh, will live for you, turn to you and come to into a full knowledge of the truth and walk in it. I pray that we never, ever forget these scriptures, never ever forget it, the conviction of our heart, that we'll hold on to it and walk in it forever and ever and ever. In the name of Jesus, amen.